Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood spectacle, the French New Wave and responses to the New Wave, Cold War movies, social realism, movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's second golden age, New German cinema, third world cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, the rise of the blockbuster, the impact of home video, corporate synergy versus independent production, CGI, international co-production, the impact of the internet, and streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. Chapter 2 in this idiosyncratic survey of movie history, The Killers and Ambiguity. We begin by remembering that the atomic age, initiated by bomb blasts over Japan, concluding World War II, defines the moment that we are considering. The atomic age altered the development of all art, entertainment, and business practices across the world, and movies participated in this new age by exploring new technology topics and storytelling forms that were not previously imagined, although many of these forms had important historical antecedents. The first antecedent we should consider is expressionism, which I'll define here as a concept whereby graphic display suggests psychological states that are otherwise unknowable. It is the way that imagery suggests what's happening inside the minds of characters who don't speak their thoughts or their emotions, but it's expressed across them, through them, with them, in a background that we can interpret because of clues we have been taught from our social connections. This value of expressionism is often tied in with a movement that stems from Germany in the post-World War I movement, which we call German Expressionism. This German Expressionistic movement is often characterized by extraordinarily stark shadow work with very bright lights casting extraordinary shadows, monstrous stories, dreamlike stories, and production design elements that make self-conscious the fact that things are painted and constructed to be production design elements. In particular, when we think about German Expressionism, we're often drawn to movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, from 1920, or Nosferatu from 1922. Each of these movies make evident the primary values of looking at things without lots of explanation. This is the silent movie era. People were not doing synchronized sound. And how the filmmakers correlated imagery to suggest madness, monstrosity, fear, excitement, lust, love, satisfaction, and so on, using strict means of what the camera could capture without explanation. 
This was powerful stuff to the wider world because the same movie that played well in Berlin could equally play well in Mumbai. Even if people did not share the same language system, they might very well interpret the image in the identical way. Expressionism also had beneath it certain key economic and aesthetic considerations that added up to its form. Meaning, many of the young filmmakers participating in this movement, which extended across multiple different art forms, had no money. What they did have was the creative energy of one another to take over decrepit spaces and paint them with whitewash cast out from the local hardware store and make interesting shapes, taking objects found on the streets and repurposing them in interesting ways and using a camera to capture these details and suggest that things we see are fractured and goofed up and strange denaturing the real and transforming it into something else, whether fantastic or nightmarish. The second key antecedent adding up to the post-war ambiguity we're thinking about now is the Great Depression. What this leads to in our circumstance is a rise of new autocratic leaders throughout the world, but in particular parts of Asia and definitely in the central part of Europe, where certain charismatic, politically motivated, upset people, like a Hitler or a Mussolini, rise to the center of their local politics, saying, I have a solution to these problems, which have resulted in inflation, loss of work, and empty bellies. I can fix it. Trust me, follow my direction, and I will correct the course of our nation and make us strong again. This message proved very, very powerful in country after country, while the liberal democracies of the developed West attempted to right the banking system in a very slow bit of progress through the 1930s. While that was happening, some of these autocratic leaders led their countries in different directions, with different economic policies, different political organizations, leading to different results that finally spilled over in the late 1930s into World War II. The third antecedent to what we're thinking about in post-war ambiguity is Italian neorealism. That movement of Italian filmmakers using newly mobile cameras to go into the streets and focus on everyday people's concerns after the conclusion of the war, which included problems like feeding children, finding meaningful work, living satisfying lives with spouses who were traumatized by war, and causing the population to see itself as valuable, even if the everyday concerns of everyday people isn't nearly as exciting as the Hollywood stars of yore. One powerful force that sweeps through the United States when the war closes in 1945 is a newfound value of consensus and conformity. Why? Well, this country, among other countries on Earth, did not want to deal with hot war again. One way to calm that pressure down is if people behave in similar fashion, believe in similar patterns, and attend similar cultural institutions. At the same time, there is the rise of the Soviet Union and its counterbalance to the developed West, the Eastern Bloc versus the Western Bloc, and the beginnings of a Cold War. 
As we drill into this movie, The Killers, it's important to realize that we're also considering movie makers of a time period where these antecedent forces of expressionism, of the Great Depression, and of Italian neorealism all influence one another in sunny Los Angeles. How? A number of filmmakers who were wealthy enough to know that their society was changing and changing against them, I'm thinking here in particular Germany in the 1930s, used their wealth to leave. They were able to find a way to get off of the continent and very often ending up in more liberal, more welcoming places, whether that's the UK, parts of Northern Africa, or else the United States. Some handful of those people who ended up rebuilding their careers in Hollywood brought with them their training and aesthetic needs, which were developed under the auspices of German Expressionism from the teens through the 1920s, meaning they were very invested in bending light and shadow to tell visual stories that expressed the inner workings of people's lives through the image alone, using props, backdrops, production design, costume, faces, makeup, but not so much the spoken word. This was important. Next, because the Great Depression robbed every big corporation of much of its resources, including the large movie houses of Los Angeles, it was valuable for those movie houses to figure out genres and forms of entertainment that would appeal to the public but do so on the cheap. Universal, as one example, leaned hard into making horror movies in black and white, because black and white stock was cheaper, because horror movies relied on jump scares and on fearful things that would make people go boo, and might cause them to buy tickets, which they did. In our example, we're looking at a movement towards crime, thinking about aspects of society which were heretofore roped off as untoward. Areas we should not explore because it is impolite, but during the war years, these wily filmmakers wanting to stretch a dollar realized we too will use black and white stock with these newly imported immigrant filmmakers, crew members and cast members both, who were used to using the screen to exhibit the visual idea of what an emotion might look like. And on top of that, we'll invite some really good screenwriters to create stories with popping dialogue. And if we can, we'll hire some good-looking people to move things right along. This depressive circumstance using expressionistic technique is then combined with the Italian neorealist impulse to sometimes go on location, to take these cameras and these performers with these aesthetic ideas and put them on a street to explore what crime might look like at night in Los Angeles, in New York, in Chicago, and really get you a sense that you're gritty and in the real, in the now, and not in an artificially produced set inside of a studio warehouse. All of that leads us to The Killers by Robert Zjadmak, which debuted at the very end of the summer of 1946. The Killers is based on an Ernest Hemingway short story of the same title that he published in 1927. It was transformed by a writer called Anthony Vailer into a screenplay that shows the debut performance of Burt Lancaster. Opposite him is Ava Gardner, 
who was then emerging into her power as a feminine ideal in the classical Hollywood era, and beyond them, a set of supporting actors which would be recognizable in the times of the 1940s in this kind of interesting genre format. In particular, the actor Edmund O'Brien, who plays a man named Jim Reardon. The setup is... Jim Reardon is an insurance investigator drawn in to look at whether his company should pay a life insurance policy on a man who has been shot brutally in a boarding house. When he begins investigating this shooting, he begins to pull back what happened to the victim, who's a man named Swede Anderson. That's Lancaster's character. And what we learn through a flashback structure is the ways in which Swede was involved with a woman named Kitty Collins, who was in turn involved with a man named Big Jim Colfax, played by Albert Decker, who was the mastermind of a crime. That payroll theft was to be divided amongst the criminals who engineered it, including the Swede, but everybody tried to backstab the other because Kitty Collins manipulated all of these men who were thinking with their head and their libido so that she could one day escape with all of the money and all of the men might, ideally, kill each other, which they mostly do. The trick of the movie is that it's told in an achronological way. Reardon meets somebody new related to the Swede, the murder victim, and they tell a story of their relationship with the Swede. We see a flashback. We come back to the present. Reardon begins furthering his investigation, meets somebody new. They tell the story of how they know the Swede. We get a flashback. These signals are engineered through kind of wavy lines of dissolve between one image and the past, where we see a very virile, handsome Burt Lancaster, and we learn what his background is that inches him forward through the present in which he is a deceased victim who's been buried in a cemetery, and there's this insurance investigator trying to figure out what really happened to him. Here's the thing. The Killers typifies a style of movie craft which we have retroactively called film noir. Film noir is, for some, a genre all to itself that involves the investigation of crimes always on the underbelly of polite society. Certain aspects of the film noir are always present. A manipulative, sexually attractive woman who realizes her value in trying to get men to do her bidding is clutch. An often unconventional chronological pattern where their narrative bends and breaks, frequently bridged by voiceover, meaning that you as the viewer must pay attention to keep up with the clues being laid out in front of you. The filming itself is done on the cheap. Very often, younger performers coming up the ranks were employed in the lead parts, which means they weren't paid top dollar, or else fading stars were placed in central roles or in key background roles for the same reason. They didn't cost as much. Because most of these movies are set roughly in the present, we use period decor, the props that people use, the cars they drive, and so on. The ideal environment of the noir is life after nightfall, as an example. This movie, The Killers, opens at night. Two men come into town, a town that is defined by a filling station and a diner that sits opposite side of the street. The two men cross the street, enter the diner, and begin harassing the counter attendant. They don't order food, they menace, smoking cigarettes constantly, and we gradually learn they're looking for a man named Pete Lund. 
Eventually, we'll learn that his actual name seems to be Swede Anderson. But along the way, they're trying to track this guy, and they end up shooting him. This is an important note and an example of how film noir style goes on the cheap for high impact. When these two killers arrive at the boarding house where the Swede is domiciled, hiding out from them, knowing his time has come. We never see the bullets hit him. We never see him in that shot at all. And we never see their guns discharge. Instead, the guns are just off screen. The shooters are in mid-shot. And we have blasts of light. That is a terrific way to minimize the use of prop gunpowder and to maximize the impact visually of what's happening. The wholesale extermination of a person by two men for reasons we do not know with complete hostility. And there we spend the rest of the movie trying to unravel what's really happened, only to, in the end, realize the smartest person we've met on screen is a woman named Kitty Collins, played by Ava Gardner, who at every turn has figured out how to make the men around her bend to her will, though she's slight. She allows their sense of being butch masculine guys to lead them right down to their demise and nearly gets away with it. In the conclusion of the movie, Reardon does report back what he's finally learned to solve this investigation he's been on and will go off on his weekend break to refresh himself and come back on Monday for more. This idea of the noir explores the theme of ambiguity because at every turn, we're unsure who is trustworthy. Thus, the whole black and white environment of the film noir style denotes visually a stark environment of light to dark, therefore good to bad, but a lot of the activity happens in that gap area of gray, which suggests the expressionistic value of seeing how people are neither all good nor all bad, especially in a post-war moment of the middle 1940s, when the collapse of whole civilizations has just concluded, and what we're left with is the fact we find all of it so dearly fascinating. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boopity doo.